Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. to recovery sort of my name's billy i'm a person in long-term recovery and i'm jason a guy also in long-term recovery what's the chances yeah <laughs> today i want to start out with a question for you i'll kind of answer it give you a chance to answer it have you ever wondered why you're an addict i know for me i have it kept me jammed up for a long time i thought i was smart i thought i was able to handle myself and yet kept finding myself in trouble and using and couldn't figure out what the hell I was doing and why I kept doing it. I still wonder why I'm an addict <laughs> daily, I think. Not in the sense anymore of like, why me? But more in the sense of I still don't have a complete surefire picture of what causes addiction. Like I, I know we're learning more and more and different things seem to make a lot of sense. Childhood traumas and, and things of that nature and using drugs as a coping mechanism you know it's not just oh we use drugs it's like oh i needed a way to cope with life because i had no coping skills so i turned to drugs and they work but yeah I, I still like we don't have a scientific way to say oh this causes addiction and you had that happen and that's why you're an addict yeah unfortunately most people nowadays look at it as some sort of moral deficiency or that people just are making bad choices for themselves because they like killing themselves and destroying their lives. Still, still, <laughs> like I, I, you know, I mean, I get we looked at it like that before, but now I feel like there's so much information out there and maybe just I've been exposed to all that information and, and other people still haven't. Yeah, well, I think that's a lot of it. There's tons of information out there if you're looking for it mm. but if you're not looking for it and you're just listening to the news or your local politicians they will make it seem like this is just they have no idea why people do what we do and there is a stunning amount of research on why we do what we do yeah yeah i, I mean i think the general consensus that you would see in pop culture or the media is we gotta fund the police to lock up these addicts and we'll fight this war on drugs Still, yeah. And I think I stayed stuck using and in addiction because of that. Like I felt like it was a moral failing or a personal choice that I was doing these things and that there must be something wrong with me. You know, you, know, you say that and I try to think back. I don't know that it held me up. Like I remember, I think even at like 17 or something, my parents made me go see some sort of therapist and, and they kind of described that I used it as a coping skill and that made a little bit of sense 
but it didn't really help me understand that I needed to do something else at all. And and I definitely felt the same way you did. I, I couldn't understand my own actions. People would say, well, why do you keep doing this? And I'd say, I, I don't know. And it was <laughs> the most honest answer I had because I had no clue why I kept doing something that I knew was not working and, and seemed stupid even to me. But I don't know that that kept me stuck in it. Are, are you saying that like somebody could have explained to me why I did it and that might have helped me stop? So I think for myself, I felt like if I knew why I was doing what I was doing, I could address it, fix it. Because I was like a totally, in recovery language, we call it self-centered. But, Mm. you know, I was in a place where I could handle all my problems. I could fix my life. I could take care of myself. If someone would just give me the right information, Mm. I could take care of it. So if somebody came along and said, hey, this is why you struggle with that drug addiction, Jason, because... This, this, and this, this is the exact reasons why, then maybe I would have said, oh, well, maybe I do need to treat those instead of just thinking I had the answers. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess that's sort of my thinking. And as we get to the end and talk about some of this, talk about why 12-step fellowships work. (laughs) You know, it's some of this sometimes seems like there's not actual science behind it. Like, a 12-step fellowship seems like some spiritual thing that came out of nowhere, but as we've talked about before, it, it definitely has some elements of cognitive behavioral therapy and some therapeutic practices in it that we disguise as something else. But And a pinch of voodoo. <laughs> yeah, right. A pinch of mysticism, <laughs> spirituality. I first learned about what I wanted to talk about today in a book called Childhood Disrupted by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Might have said that wrong. But, you know, I heard this book. I had listened to a bunch of different books on addiction and what it is and where it comes from. And this is one of the books that came across, you know, my radar. And I listen to it because I don't read. I just listen to audio books. Same. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> so I listened to it and fascinating talking about what's called the ACEs score. And this ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And it's basically a way of measuring trauma that we have suffered, that people have suffered, and how that relates to different health and mental issues that people have. In your education that you've been going through in college for your degree, have you learned about the ACEs studies and taken an ACEs test and heard about that information before? Yeah, we've never taken the test. It's still filtering its way out into academia and into the therapy world, but it is becoming more relevant as we talk about trauma-based care. And so the problem with therapy is they get buzzwords, right? Like there's a, some research or scientific-based discovery about something, and then this these new buzzwords come out and then insurance companies only want to pay for things that involve those buzzwords. And so really therapy, unfortunately, gets based around whatever an insurance company is willing to pay for. So when cognitive behavioral therapy started and short-term therapy, like that's all they wanted to cover, even though that's not always the most useful way. But yeah, you hear about it a lot now that places need to be trauma-informed and deal with any ACEs and to explore that with anybody they see. Like I said, where it came from was the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, which I think is an insurance company. Shocking. Yeah, did some research into these different types of childhood abuse, neglect, signs of rough upbringings, and then tried to, or, or fascinatingly, I guess if you want to say it that way, correlated it with different sorts of health and 
mental issues, addiction, cancer, chronic heart disease, depression, suicide. And they found all these links that was, I don't want to say proving, but basically showing that as children suffered these different traumas, their likelihood for like risky behaviors kind of went up. You know, these studies kind of help. It's not specifically about addiction, but obviously there's links to addiction in there that you're basically trying to self-medicate or (laughs) self-soothe, you know, from these traumas. And we turn to drugs as a coping mechanism for for getting through some of these traumas. It almost seems like just the more we learn, like we started out in, in maybe the 1940s with AA, not so much knowing what addiction was, just thinking of it as a spiritual condition, a self-centeredness, some way that together we could get through it. And the more the science learns, the more we start to learn. So maybe one day, 50 years from now, we really know exactly what causes addiction if there is one singular thing right or we know the combination of things but as we learn more we do at least learn more of this didn't come out of nowhere there's some genetics there's some biology there's some situational factors in your upbringing and the more we know about it i think the better off we are to be able to treat it maybe like you said that people are ready to go to treatment or receive treatment sooner in life or maybe just the fact that knowledge helps to some way combat it When I first got clean, maybe seeing a therapist to deal with some of these ACEs would have helped me to stay clean that time instead of going back because I didn't get a chance to do anything about them. Yeah, it's hard to take myself back to being a 17 or 18 year old kid and what I would have been willing to listen to at that time. But of course, nowadays, I would like to say (laughs) that if someone had told me at 17, like, look, you suffered some traumas in your upbringing that caused a cognitive impairment that caused a condition in you, an impairment in your development that leads you to want to do these risky behaviors that causes you to to sort of look for things outside yourself to satisfy feeling of not feeling good enough or smart enough for all those reasons that I used and that we can address some of those things and address some of those feelings and make using not your only coping mechanism for dealing with your problems and dealing with life. As an intellectual person, I feel like, oh, that would have seemed way more helpful than what I felt like I was being told as a 17 or 18 year old kid, which was you need to stop doing drugs and alcohol completely. You are a drug addict and you'll never be able to manage these things on your own. And you need to go to these 12 step meetings and tell people about your problems and talk to all these strangers. Mm -hmm. And at that age, none of that seemed appealing whatsoever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like, I wasn't as bad as them yet. Yeah, I didn't right. need their help. They were there was something really wrong with them. I think the only thing I was told was like, you need to stop and get your life together. It was like get a haircut and get a real job. Like, right, <laughs> just get your shit together, Jason. I'm like, I want to. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, my family knew there was some issues with me. We would have conversations about stuff, but I actually ended up, I guess you'd say, in the legal system or in the whatever at the county health department basically court ordered a treatment at 17 Mm. so that's when i first started hearing you're an addict or you have to self-identify i know they don't necessarily categorize you as an addict but you go in and you answer these 20 questions and then they're like well if you answered yes to four of these you're an addict you know right we won't call you an addict but go to na meetings right (laughs) Right. I went to treatment at 17 for the Mm -hmm. first time. So I'm sure I was introduced to the lingo. I know I was told to go to an NA meeting. They had H&I. I had that introduction, but it was still 
I think from people who weren't in that field, like what I heard the rest of the time that I wasn't in a detox somewhere was you need to get your life together. Yeah. Why can't you get your life together? What's wrong? Yeah. Well, and some of what I understand of the ACEs studies are exactly that. There are cognitive neuroscientific reasons why you couldn't get your life together. Right. <laughs> your development. Well, I don't know. Now I'm assessing you. I don't know what your score would be. So <laughs> what's the highest one? <laughs> I think 10. Oh, I, mine's probably like 14. <laughs> <laughs> so to get your ACEs score, what, we're, what I'm talking about is the original study was done back in 1990s sometime, and they had these original 10 questions to identify different types of trauma. You would take the test, and then, of course, the higher number that you are, the more at risk you are for different alcoholism, depression, suicide, different things like that. Since that, they've expanded it out now. They include different types of trauma, different things about like racism, the community you grow up in and those sorts of things is also being potentially traumatic for kids growing up in certain areas in certain situations. But the original test was these 10 questions. They're basically yes or no questions that you would answer. And then you get a score at the end based on your number of yes answers. So today I wanted to see if you'd be willing to take the test. We'll kind of go into a little bit of I mean, I would like to discuss a little bit of our personal history behind each of the answers that we have for yes. Yeah, absolutely. And see what our score is and see what it all means. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is hugely relevant. So for anybody that that doesn't know, and I mean, obviously, this information is not being given out to the masses in any quick fashion. As I mean, Billy just mentioned this original thing, this study was from the 1990s. Like that's been 20 some years since then. And we're just now maybe putting the focus on it, which is incredible. And that's only in communities where people are focused on this topic. Like the average person has probably still never heard of ACEs. If you go talk to somebody in Cecil County about ACE, they probably think you mean the hardware store. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, this stuff is relevant. This is real. We know this. We know that there's children who come from a home where there's no love and you can't really quantify love, but there's no affection. There's no attachment. There's no ability, even if the parent cares about their child to really provide these things because they weren't provided for them. And we've watched in case studies where children will eat the amount of calories they're supposed to eat, but not gain weight. It's kind of like the run of the litter in a sense that like there's nothing they can do about it. They can tube feed them, whatever. The child will not gain weight and they will remain malnourished. Because they're not receiving something completely different. And we're just like, oh, no, if you feed people, they'll get bigger. That's not true. So we've watched these case studies where you take this child that won't gain weight and put them into a nurturing, loving environment. And instantly, basically, everything's fine. And it's like, well, how the fuck? And they're eating the same amount of calories. And so we know that these situations that children grow up in highly affect their internal chemistry, their biology, the ways everything interacts. And so I think it's hugely relevant that we're learning and finally getting the information out there that as you're growing up in this environment, your brain is not being programmed right. And I think you related before we started talking today about if you stab somebody, they bleed, right? And this is kind of a similar thing. Like if you treat someone a certain way in childhood, they have their own version of bleeding. Maybe they're bleeding their ability to have comfort or something, and then they seek that comfort for the rest of their life. Like this is hugely relevant for the mental health slash addiction community. Yeah. And we'll look at things like, well, 
occasionally a child makes it out of that okay, or occasionally (laughs) there's a success story that they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get their life together and they don't suffer all this trauma. But what the evidence shows is that nine out of 10 of those kids are not going to end up that way. (laughs) You know, nine out of 10 of them are going to end up as addicts or with eating disorders or chronic heart disease or depression or on some kind of antidepressant medications. We know that most of them are going to suffer. And yet we'll look at the one exception and go, yeah, see, you can do it. (laughs) Right. Why don't the other nine do it just like you (laughs) did? And we don't know any of the mitigating factors in that, right? We don't know if that guy had like a goddamn uncle that was super supportive that helped in building his resiliency, right? We don't know if he had a teacher in second grade that really emphasized that he could do this. And that's why he had it. Like, we don't know what support actually cause that resiliency or maybe none did maybe he's just the one out of ten genetically you know different that was able to to pull himself up but that's not the case and and you're right we just judge by this one case and say why are the masses not able to do what this one person did which is ass backwards because if it happens to 90 percent of people then you say damn what can we do for these 90 percent of people Yeah, as you said, like there are some things we're learning through the ACEs sciences through these different studies that have developed as a result of the original study that there are things you can do. We can hopefully interrupt that developmental process. I mean, in my mind, hopefully earlier in adolescence, when you can start to identify some of these things in young adults, Mm. if we can introduce some of these healthier behaviors, they won't need to resort to some of the more high-risk, compulsive, impulsive behaviors. It's incredibly frightening to me because these are kids who are having adverse childhood experiences in typically normal, loving, suburban homes, right? Like where, where parents are there, where they still have love for the kid and are doing the best they can. They just maybe have some misinformation or maybe don't have the abilities to give to their kid what the kid really needs. Like this is happening there at an incredible scale and rate. And yet, if you ever work in like child welfare or any of these impoverished communities, you see that these situations, not hopeless, but like well more devastating. And it's more the norm than the exception to the rule. And it's like, holy shit, where are we headed in 50 years, 20 years? Yeah. And after we go through the test, I wanted to get into a few minor statistics. I won't bore everybody with a ton of statistics, but Just to give a little background on that, the original study was done on, it was 17,000 kids all in like the California area. And these were middle class to upper middle class, predominantly white families. So the initial study wasn't done on like poor communities or impoverished communities or addicted communities. It was done on suburbia, middle-class America, and the results were still pretty shocking, you know, and how bad the results were even to people that had seemingly, quote-unquote, good lives or plenty of opportunity. Right. So if you're someone who has struggled with addiction or alcoholism or whatever you'd like to call it or mental health, or you are the earthling that doesn't have any of these, why do you care about this? For me personally, I would say One, better understanding of this information is just hugely crucial for me getting better at all times. The more I learn about me and the things that have gone wrong for me, the better chance I have at examining them and moving forward and not having them 
inform every life decision I make unconsciously, right? Like without me even knowing. And then two, as a parent, I want to know what not to do, right? Like I don't want to screw my kids up any more than I already obviously have a little bit. You know, some of that shit gets passed on before I even know it. But the more I know about how not to act, the better off I'll be to set them up for a less unhealthy life, I guess. Yeah, that and how we can approach our communities to be in better position to deal with some of these things. I mean, as you talked about, could have been an uncle or someone at a school that sort of became a support or a Mm -hmm. mentor or whatever for a kid in their life. If you're aware of some of these traumas that can be happening to kids at home, you know, and you're aware of some pretty, what I'll say are fairly basic minor things that you can do to support that kid and give them another avenue to deal with their issues, you can become a positive role model in your community to other people as well. I dig it. So we want to take the test? Is that what we're doing? We're going to take the test. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We'll start with question at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you. Or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt. I feel like we need a Likert scale for this, not just yes or no, like, you know, zero, it never happened, 10, this was your life. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I I had that. And and look, I don't want to, I'm not trying to like diss my parents here in this statement. I actually want to try to be compassionate to my parents because my parents both loved me greatly and I knew that they loved me and that still didn't change the fact that they had maybe awful upbringings themselves or terrible information to go on or their own mental health issues. This didn't happen in a home where I was like hated by my father. Like he loved the hell out of me, right? He really cherished our relationship. And yet that still took place daily. Yeah. And that's how it was with my mom. You know, I really feel like she loved and cared about me and did the best that she could. But people hear all the time, like there isn't a book or a class on parenting. Well, there are plenty nowadays, but Back then, there didn't seem to be, you know, a one-size-fits-all guide to parenting, and my mom did the best that she could. Parents are too busy both working jobs to keep up with the economy, and (laughs) they can't take those classes. Who's got time for that shit? Well, when I was a kid, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She, you know, we were a middle-class family, so she stayed at home. I mean, it didn't help the anger or insults too much. Might have made it worse. Yeah. Maybe she needed to go right. to work. She needed to get out away from his kids. <laughs> we drove her nuts. But there's another thing too. I don't know, maybe in some of your education, they may have talked about or addressed this, but does it matter so much whether it was a reality or whether it was perceived? For example, you know, does it matter if my mom occasionally insulted me 
but my memory or recollection is that I was insulted daily. No, it doesn't matter whatsoever, because what we understand is that everybody's got a different tolerance. Kind of like if you put 10 people in a row and then started turning the temperature up and said, leave the room when you can't bear it anymore, they're not all going to walk out at the same time. It might be close times, right? It might be a close temperature. Maybe it's only a five degree difference that humans can tolerate, but it will be varied. And so if somebody's threshold for taking criticism just happens to be lower, it doesn't matter if you only criticized them once a week. That felt like all the time to them, then that felt like all the time to them. Like we right. can't argue feelings. As a society, I think, and, and I've found myself in this place, we will tend to minimize our experience. Like I said, well, my mom never really cussed me out. She just maybe called me stupid or maybe told me I was an idiot or maybe told me she was going to, you know, smack me upside the head, like things like that. But she didn't actually do it. So that <laughs> makes it okay. Yeah. I don't, I only got the wooden belt. I didn't get the steel belt. Right. I wasn't, it wasn't as bad as some of these other things. We found ourselves dealing with something similar with sexual abuse. So we, my daughter suffered some sexual abuse and because it only happened once and we found out about it and stopped it and put an end to it, we actually had people say things like, well, that's really great that it only happened once or, you know, maybe not in that exact way. Maybe that's not what they said. That's fucking what it sounded like when they said it. <laughs> <laughs> but they would say things like, you know, well, it could have been worse. It you know, and it's like, well, yeah. wait a minute, my fucking kid just suffered this trauma and you're going to tell me that it could have been worse. Like I'm supposed right. to be grateful that it happened at <laughs> all. Like what the fuck is wrong with people where we can't look at this and say that's pretty traumatic. It's terrible that your parents told you you were stupid or called you an idiot or there's a great short video. It's a Brene Brown thing. It's a cartoon. You can find it on YouTube. It's not hard to any search words about what I'm saying will probably bring it up. But basically, it shows the difference between trying to keep a positive attitude like that, which is very dismissive. If you're always trying to look on the bright side, you're actually dismissing other people's concerns. And then how to do empathy instead and how it looks a little different and feels so much different. So check that out if you don't understand those differences, because that's crucial. We went through question number one, which is basically, were your parents pretty mean to you on a regular basis? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Question number two. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Yes. Okay. So I would say yes to that as well. That was how you disciplined them. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people that still argue that we should. that's why the world's messed up because we stopped doing that. Yeah. We need to beat our children. Beat them more and that'll be better. Spare the rod, spoil the child. <laughs> yeah there's just not enough education out there yeah. it really isn't but there are truly i i hear it all the time i see it on facebook there's people who think that that's when the world went bad was when their parents stopped spanking children yeah and if you're curious if you look there is a lot of research out there on physical abuse and how that is definitely not helpful to educating children on behaviors that you want. Most of the time, what that leads to are things like bullying and violence and domestic violence. More importantly, there are actually zero research studies that prove that physical deterrence are the best way to handle anything. <laughs> right. There's none. Right. It doesn't exist. Right. They may be effective, but yes. they aren't good. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're effective short term. Right. So are drugs. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Drugs get rid of the pain for a little while. Yeah. All right. So three, 
Did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you, or have you touched their bodies in a sexual way, or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you? Yes. I would be a yes as well. And I don't know how much you want to talk about, but I was <laughs> physically molested by an older male family member, an older cousin who was like a teenager when I was, I don't remember the details sometimes, so I feel like that makes it easy to dismiss it. <laughs> right, right. But I was probably between five and seven, five and eight, and it was somebody that I looked up to and admired and thought they were just the coolest. And I mean, I don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of detail to mine. I had a sister that was like seven years older. I was like five or six. She was 12 or 13. And it became some kind of show and tell touchy game. And I'm like, I always dismissed it because I'm like, we're dudes. We're supposed to like that. I got an mm. early jump. Right. And the more I explored that in therapy, it was like, nah, that probably fucked me up. My case, since it was a male, like I was really confused about whether that made me gay. Right. It definitely wasn't growing up in the 80s and 90s. It wasn't like okay to be gay. Not I mean, like it I, is today. Yeah, it's a little more accepted now. So I might have been more willing to talk about it. But since there was all this fear that, well, I might be gay or I could be gay. And I don't even know because I'm freaking seven. Like right. I don't understand sexuality <laughs> yet. But trying to figure out some of that and then being totally unwilling to talk about it, admit that it ever happened. Mm. Even probably acknowledge that it even happened, living in some form of denial of like, well, it wasn't that bad and it could have been worse and, and all that stuff that we tell ourselves wasn't anything that I really ever wanted to address. I'm three for three, right? I'm batting a thousand. Yeah. That's not necessarily good. <laughs> so four, did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other? feel close to each other, or support each other. Yes. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to get the MVP award here. <laughs> Rookie of the Aces year. Yeah, so on that one, I would have to say no. I didn't experience that. I felt like my parents loved me and took care of me, and you know, I had supports in my life through family. My mom's family was all really close to each other, and then even growing up, we were close to both sets of grandparents on both sides of my family. Yeah, but what was the last part of it? Your family didn't look out for each other feel close to each other or support each other there was just an underlying current of not close in my family like my mother and father would argue and then they would be like standoffish for like three or four days in a row where they almost barely talked to each other only for functional purposes and then i always felt like i couldn't enjoy my parents together i had enjoy this one or enjoy that one and then as i was enjoying that i felt guilty because i felt like i was joining a team a lot of times it's just it was a fucked up environment yeah, now that you say that, I, I guess I didn't feel close to my family, and I still don't feel close to mm. my family. Maybe I got to get myself a half. Of, <laughs> I don't know if I can get a half for that one, but yeah. I mean, I felt like my family loved and cared about me, but yeah, I don't feel like they, yeah, we weren't what I would consider close. Yeah, there's degrees of this stuff. So five, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you? Or your parents were too drunk or too high to take care of you or take you to the doctors if you needed it. Now, see, and, and this is where it's, I think it's easy to answer yes to almost any of these because it seems like there's always a part that fits, right? <laughs> like a lot of that doesn't apply. There was always food in my house. I always had clean clothes. I did feel a lot of times like there was no one to protect me, but it wasn't really my parents' fault, right? It was from getting 
bullied at school and stuff. Every once in a while, I'd talk a little bit about it with my parents, but I didn't really want them to intervene. Hmm. Like, I just felt like I would get further bullied for them intervening. And I everything those kids were saying would be true. Oh, I'm a wimp. I had to get my parents to come down to school and talk to them. Yeah. Right. So it's almost my fault. I don't want to blame myself, but it's like it's almost my doing. But I still felt that way. I felt unprotected a lot in that sense. And I'm thinking so it's it's almost like you talked about earlier. Like, does it really matter whose fault it was or yeah. whether it was your I mean, it doesn't necessarily say that it was your parents fault that that happened. It says, did you feel this way? If you felt that way, it was traumatic. Yeah. And that's where I feel like every one of these is like a list of three different things. And at least one of them applies, yeah. even if all of them don't. I mean, I would say for me, I didn't feel like any of that applied. To be honest, like there wasn't anything in there that I could say, yes, like the other one I could think about, like, man, I didn't really feel that close to my family, but I felt loved and cared about that one. I don't feel that way. Maybe we're just such traumatized people. We just think it's normal. <laughs> like, you know, like, this is normal. Everyone goes through this shit, you yeah, know, everybody at least everyone I know, because everyone I know is a fucking addict. <laughs> there you go. So six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Separated for how long? <laughs> Like legally separated, like living in different places, or we left the house one night because it wasn't safe to be there and didn't come back for a day or two. I don't know. I don't know either. I right? guess it's your perception. It's like you said, what was your perception? Like mine was no, I do, my parents never separated or divorced. Or my anything. perception was that at long periods of time, my parents were living together and not together is what <laughs> it seemed like. Like they, they were almost like enemies a lot. Huh. It, was, it was always a lot of tension always tension between them and i felt like the adult a lot of times of trying to like can we just sit down and talk about what everybody needs <laughs> <laughs> yeah see and, and i didn't have that in my house i mean my parents got along my mom was kind of bullyish and my dad was a little more submissive mm. but they weren't like at odds i mean occasionally they would argue but never anything like where shit was getting broke or things were getting thrown around or people yeah. were leaving you know it was nothing like that yes that we had some of that <laughs> yeah. i think at one point there was talk of divorce too for a three month or six month period it was like well we look like we might be going this way will you be all right with that blah 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 blah, blah. and so yeah i'm just gonna say yes because I, I mean <laughs> you said it's all about how i feel so fuck it i felt like we were separate my parents did at one point talk about separate separating but it never really happened and it wasn't it was like a minor blip of things my right. dad was drinking probably a little more than he should not that it affected our family really because he wasn't what i would consider an alcohol even now it wasn't anything like what i consider people that have a drinking problem <laughs> he just he was running a business so he would go out a lot with friends and do businessy things mm -hmm. and drink and she didn't like that she wanted him to come home all the time and i think you just know all the worst alcoholics and so <laughs> looking at him you're like ah, yeah he's right. All right. that's a high functioning alcoholic right. <laughs> seven was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes, or threatened with a gun or a knife? That's incredibly descriptive. <laughs> yes. Wow. Did anyone ever take their fingernail on your mother's <laughs> eyeball? Like, what the? Wow. See, this is where it gets tricky. Like, often? What the fuck is often? Somewhat often? Every once in a while when there was an explosive situation? Like, I don't feel like that happened daily or weekly or probably not even monthly. But every once in a while there was a physical interaction. Yeah, see, and in my household I never saw any 
physical violence like that. Once, twice, three times a year, maybe. Yeah. So then it's up to you. Do you consider that often or not often? I consider myself fucked up. So I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's all, yeah. It was traumatizing. I mean, it, I was going to say, it sounds like it was traumatizing. If it was once a year to sit as a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven year old, knowing I can't do anything at the top of the steps and hear them scream at each other and loud crashing sounds of which you don't know what is and who's doing what and who's fallen and who's hurt or who might or might not be breathing tomorrow. Yeah, that's fucking traumatizing. Yeah, and I could say as a person who's never witnessed or or seen like physical abuse of my mother like if i ever had seen that like even fucking once it seems like that would have been pretty traumatic yeah you know like i couldn't imagine seeing my dad push my mom down or punch her and to think of someone else seeing that is like wow that's fucking traumatic but if you've seen that like you said even a couple of times it's like meh what happened just not that much like right. what the fuck you mean it happened but not that much like that's pretty bad point. that's pretty traumatic you know yeah. to live in that i don't know i'm sitting here guessing whether i should have said yes or not and then i described the situation and i'm like yeah fuck, what the fuck? <laughs> right. but that's what we do i mean that's our survival mechanism like right. i can minimize this i can make it i can normalize it to be like yeah the, everybody goes through this kind of shit and then yeah. you hear like no some people actually don't go through any of this stuff like some people have never had any of this happen in their life if you can imagine that i'm over here like no wonder you can meditate 10 minutes a day you didn't have to watch this any of that <laughs> eight did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or use drugs or use street drugs okay. no I, I am a no. see yeah. i don't know yeah i'm kind of i'm thinking i my father was like a dry drunk though like he would drink every friday and saturday night while he listened to music and it didn't seem out of control, but I was always asleep before he got to the end of it. So I don't know what it looked like at the end, but the, the anger, like all that stuff we look about in, in when we talk about dry drunks or alcoholics who just stop drinking and don't do any work on themselves, all that stuff was present. I relate that to, he struggled with depression very greatly and maybe some other mental health stuff that wasn't diagnosed, but he would have those bouts of like raid and outbursts and all those things, that whole life of discontent just at all times just never really happy with what was going on in life i mean i say he didn't drink excessively but i don't know like all the behaviors are there what's the difference but i'll say no like in my household so my mom never well she occasionally drank but maybe like twice a year random occasions at someone's wedding or something right but she almost never drank she never did any sort of illegal drugs or mortified by even smoking pot my dad said he went through a period i I don't know if it's a phase or what you call it in his probably late 30s early 40s where again running a business he was out with friends and business things and going to conferences and seemed to drink a lot at one point he got a DUI Mm -hmm. but then it's like when the negative consequences started to come he just stopped he just he got his DUI he stopped drinking they made him go to some meetings he would go to AA meetings occasionally and he did all his court stuff and he actually didn't drink during that whole time, which to me was astounding because like I would get a DUI and it was like, all right, how the fuck do I get around this situation? Right. <laughs> like, cause I'm not going to stop drinking. I'm going to keep drinking. And I just have to figure out how I can Give do it driving. without getting caught again. <laughs> right. Whereas he actually just said, oh no, I'm going to stop. I'm not actually going to drink anymore. And he didn't. 
And he, and now, like, he's a normal person. He did all his court-ordered stuff. He went through all that. He did whatever with my mom to get through that. And now he occasionally drinks like a normal person, you know, at holidays or occasionally when he goes out with friends. But never to the excess that I ever did. Sure sign that I am an addict or alcoholic, whatever you'd like to call it, would be that if I got a DUI... I would go to Drivers Anonymous to stop driving. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that, driving's right. my issue, man. I got to stop driving. Right. I'd rather just not drive. <laughs> that seems better. Nine. Was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? I think I just answered this. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, and yes. So interestingly enough, and I don't know how I would answer this, because I would identify my mom as suffering a mental illness. Mm. I didn't identify that as a kid, though. And I don't think I identified this till way later in life, actually, in talking with my wife and, and things. She's like, well, you know, your mom's mentally ill, right? <laughs> Which, you know, she had suffered some incredible abuse as a kid. You know, she was probably a 10 of 10 on all these things, right. you know, and never got counseling or any sort of therapy, never went for a psychological evaluation. No, she wouldn't go to doctors or any of that stuff to tell her she was crazy. But now in hindsight, looking at things, you know, my wife has pointed out, well, you can see all these areas where she's like bipolar and see these things in her behavior right. and how she acts and what she does. So I guess I, I'm not sure if it would matter if I identified her as having a mental illness or whether suffering the results of a mental illness, even if you didn't know what they were. Yeah, I don't think it matters. I, I would say what I take out of what you just said is that anybody out there that's in a pretty long-term relationship or a marriage or you have a partner that's met your family, ask them objectively without harshly taking it and, and crucifying them over their opinions. <laughs> but they have some insight into your family of yeah. origin that you do not. <laughs> right. I just, I definitely, like I can think of things I know about my wife's parents and she definitely has pointed out some stuff that was a revelation to me when I was able to finally see it. I was like, huh. That's interesting that other people are more able to see the unhealthiness in our family. So don't just dismiss that shit. That that might be real. Yeah. And, and it helps that like I know my wife very much loved my mom and, and mm. cared about her. And, you know, she was a big part of our life. Right. You know, so when she said these things, it wasn't like your fucking mom is crazy. <laughs> you know? like, That's usually how it comes right. out. Yeah, That's usually how it comes out. But it wasn't that it was in serious conversations of, you know, with my mom's health and some things that she dealt with as she got older, because it would baffle me like the things as my mom got older, the way she was dealing with like her deteriorating health and I would see her mental struggles and it was like, I didn't understand. This was a woman that I thought was this like strong, hard, angry person. And as an adult looking at her, I could recognize that harshness was like a defense mechanism. It was mm -hmm. like a wall she was trying to put up when really she was like fragile and weak, you know, when it wasn't my mom and I was a little kid. Now that I was an adult, this person has not a really good grasp on reality <laughs> right right you know we're not far from from having earbuds that instantaneously in real time translate other languages when people speak them and i think the next step from there is we need to make earbuds that instantaneously translate what people are really saying so when somebody's like your mother's fucking crazy what it really <laughs> says in your ear is like 
I'm really worried. Your mother has some mental health issues, <laughs> right. and we should probably help her in some way. She is not dealing rationally with her emotions. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be so cool to have that? I need that. I need everybody right. that I talk to to have that. Is right. what I really need. <laughs> Mine immediately goes to the judgment and criticism, oh, sarcasm, yeah. like <laughs> a sarcasm filter. That's what we need. Yeah. Well, I'll be sitting there saying some judgy shit about somebody, and what everybody actually hears is like, "I'm insecure and don't feel well about myself today," <laughs> right. so I'm pointing out other people's flaws. <laughs> Yeah. Number 10. Did a household member go to prison? Can I count me? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's what I was thinking, too. I was the I only did. one in my household, so I would say no. I mean, my father got locked up one day, but... Yeah, my dad got arrested, Actually, I think too. twice, but he didn't go to prison. Yeah. But I did, so I'm a household member. Well, I didn't go to prison. I just went to county jail, so... Fuck! If you count that, then there was a household member who lived in my house getting high. Me! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we're going to say not you. We don't count you. We don't count me? No. Are you sure? Is this yes, immediate family yes. just in the household? Does it say household? It says household. Okay, so no. So let's see. Let's tally up here. Besides the prison of marriage. You got me beat, so now I can feel better about myself. There you go. <laughs> you have an eight, and I have a four. You only have a four? Yeah. And I that led you to four. addiction? I, so may, could... I could. I mean, there's some potential fives, possibly five, but I'll say I'm, I'm a... I'm a hard four. And this is how serious this relates. I mean, I, I can joke about, you know, I, I'm twice as bad as you and all that great stuff. But <laughs> I mean, really, if you think about this, if a four on that scale of 10, if only 40% of this stuff led you to needing drugs to cope with life or addiction or whatever we'd like to say it, that's scary because it's very easy that four of these could take place in any home in America or anywhere. And oh, yeah. so that's that's fucking frightening if that's all it takes. Right. I'm thinking, oh, you got to get like 70 or higher to pass <laughs> this test. Right. No. I mean, how low can it go? We should give this to every addict we know and find out who's got like a two and be like, fuck that. that now the whole world's screwed. Like you only need two of these there. I mean, they've done. Besides the initial study, they've done like 70 more studies into this stuff. Some states have done their own studies, and the statistics are, I'm going to say, shocking. Oh, good, because I didn't want to do all that work. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, yeah, you just, there's someone doing all that work <laughs> already, Jason. We don't I, have to bother. I regretted it right after I signed up for it. <laughs> I was like, why did I say that? So about 64% of people have at least one ACE only score 64 percent. yeah well that's more than half the country have at least one i mean they were pretty basic parts of childhood i know that's a twisted view <laughs> right. they seem like basic parts of childhood i'm shocked honestly that only 64 percent of people have one and i truly i want to go meet these fucking liars families that say they don't <laughs> well i am sure again this the initial studies took place in white middle class neighborhoods i'm sure if you went into certain neighborhoods you would find it way higher you know obviously 64 percent of people have one of these and yes. the other 36 percent are liars <laughs> yeah so you'd say all right well what does that really mean especially for addiction well people with an ace score of one or more are two to four times more likely to use alcohol or drugs. Hold on now. So if 64% of people had one, does that mean the other 36% had more than one? No, they have zero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm trying to find a way for this to make sense, God damn it. Okay, so two to four times more likely just having one. Just having one. Is this exponential? Is this like you had 32 times as much because you had four? Or So the risk factors go up. Yes, on different oh types of things. So the more that you have, the more likely you are. So so what's it for four? Do you have that one? 
12% of the population has an ACE score of four or higher. Having four or higher doubles the risk of heart disease and cancer, mm. increases the likelihood of becoming an alcoholic by 700%. Holy shit. <laughs> so four or more, you're 700 times more likely to become an alcoholic. Wow. And I, I'm going to lump addict in that yeah, as well. They, same you know, shit. Back in the 80s, we liked alcoholic better. Yeah. We thought there were different things. That's all we could talk about. <laughs> And then people with an ACE score of five or more are seven to ten times more likely to use illegal drugs, to inject drugs, and to self-report as addicts. Wow. Oh, and there was another. So people with a score of four or more are also 1,200 times more likely to commit suicide. Mm. 1,200 times more likely to commit suicide. That's so incredible. what I mean, what that says is that most people that commit suicide have suffered some of these early childhood traumas i'm speechless (laughs) that's i mean obviously you read this list and you say yeah if people go through things they're gonna you know turn out not great but (laughs) those numbers are astounding so the more they're studying and digging into some of this the way i kind of think about it it's like it's like baking a cake like you need certain ingredients to bake a cake and if you take one of those ingredients away you don't have a cake anymore. You have something right. else. So that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to be able to fix all of these things. Certainly, we can't just, oh, you're at risk of parents being mean to you, so we're going to take you out of your household and put you in with nice parents. Then you suffer the results of being taken away from your parents, which is its own trauma in its right. own right. So what we can do is take some of this information and look for, like, say, maybe possibly early warning signs or early interventions or things that can be used to address some of these traumas. If we know that most kids, and by most, I mean when you say 64% of the population, that's more than half, so that would be most (laughs) kids are suffering some sorts of trauma. Isn't it something we should be teaching more about? Like in schools, isn't it something that people should be more aware of, you know, in how we're dealing with parenting? Algebra. (laughs) Geometry. No, that's all we need. Dude, I ain't going to lie. My kids are doing that work right now, and they're like, when are we ever going to use this? And I'm like, I have never, ever fucking used any of this. (laughs) I don't know how to do it anymore. I haven't done it since high school. Right. Like, you're not going to use that. Why don't we teach you about adverse childhood experiences? (laughs) Why don't we teach you how to cope, feel better about yourself and self-care and things that are actually useful on a daily basis? I, I don't know. I'm... I'm still going back. You said talking about making a cake. I'm like, man, I was supposed to be a carrot cake, but I, the ingredients I got, I ended up a fruit cake. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I ended up some other kind of cake. Yeah, I'm like bread. <laughs> right. Dry bread. That's why drugs livened me up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gave me what I was missing. God. My missing ingredients. So one of the doctors that's been involved in some of these studies and that does treatment of addiction today, he says instead of addiction, we should call it ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. Mm. And that, as we talked about with the, the bleeding person, like people's choices to use are of reaction to their trauma, their upbringing and these things. It's not. Like, how would we expect them to interact any differently? No, I mean, that makes sense. We talk about in our program, one of the lines I identify with in our literature more than anything else, at least at this stage of my recovery, is that we seek to return to a time of ease and comfort. 
And like that always stood out to me because a lot of days, you know, we talked about relapse and how it doesn't really necessarily need the drug. We have like a relapse mode or whatever. A lot of days, me not working my program isn't about, am I going to pick up heroin and cocaine this evening? It's just about the behaviors that make me not feel good about myself. And those behaviors are generally avoiding responsibilities and work, the things that will make me feel good about accomplishing it later, right? And it's all about feeling ease and comfort and avoid for me that looks like an avoidance of responsibility right can i sit in this fucking chair all day and not move and not do anything like i look for these days in my life i'm like (laughs) oh saturday's coming there's no kids sports i don't have to take anybody anywhere i'm not fucking moving right and that's that's that comfort and so I still, in a way, seek that. And I guess the drugs, like, I'm just picturing, like, if you have a hole in your gas tank and you have to constantly be putting gas in it to keep it going, right? Like, I have a hole in my comfort tank or something and I can't feel it and I just need to constantly put these things in my body that give me that. And nobody showed me any. Nobody came to the top of the stairs when that that physical stuff in my house was going on and I was crying and scared and said, this is how you find a way to make peace with that, right? Maybe you talk to a higher power. Maybe you make a hot tea. Maybe you snuggle up in warm blankets. Maybe you allow yourself to cry peacefully and it's okay because there's nothing wrong with crying. Or maybe you call a friend and talk about it. Like nobody showed me any of that. They just said, ignore that this shit happened and don't talk about it or they'll take you out of this house. Yeah. And that becomes part of the problem. So for me personally, when I was, you know, reading through some of this and what I've learned about it through my personal research or whatever, is that there are some key components that are really important when we look at addiction or some of the other mental health issues that we're dealing with so rampantly in our communities. One of those is the neurobiological component. And I'm going to kind of generalize here, but if you go on to the, there's a website called aces2high.com. That's where you can go take the ACE test. It's what's your ACE score. You can go there and take the test. It gives you way more of the research and the data and the studies. It gives you lots of charts and graphs about stuff that you're talking about, what your likelihood of, I think it's like people that are like five or more ACEs are like 90% likely to get on antidepressant medications, things like that. It's astounding some of the statistics that are on there. I didn't want to bog everyone down with You're all You're talking of about me again. I know. <laughs> but you can go on there and find all this stuff. But one of the things that they talk about in there is the actual damage that happens to your brain. Like you suffer as a kid in your development, in your like neurocognitive development, you know, you are actively impaired and it gets into why there's some plaques that get formed on certain receptors and you you're left traumatized, mentally traumatized from these experiences. And so as addicts, what we get into in our 12 step journey is sort of dealing with the results of that. We don't look at the why so much. We just look at the all right, I am now a person that just really compulsively comfort seeks. I always, we use different language. We say, I always want to do what's easier, softer, what feels good. Yeah. Um, if it results. feels good, I want more. You know, if it's like, I don't want to do the hard stuff. It's like, yeah, that's that's been wired into my brain at this point because of these traumas that I suffered as a kid. At least for me, what that kind of stuff means is I can't just stop using drugs and expect everything's going to be better. My brain is fucked up 
now. You know? Right. I, I want all the results without any of the work. I feel entitled or owed. And maybe I feel owed because I feel like my life has been so shitty. Right? <laughs> right. Like maybe it's I'm like, man, I need a break. Like something should come easy for me since this has been so hard. I mean, I don't I don't know. Maybe I'm just justifying my entitlement <laughs> issues. <laughs> right. Well, and then there's a part of that that nowadays we're starting to learn all about the epigenetics of things and how these things are passed down, you know, genetically in our DNA. We're predisposed to certain behaviors, certain things, and that these things do get passed on not just behaviorally, generationally, but actually in our DNA. Fucking DNA. Yeah. This is why I should have came from space. <laughs> just had my own DNA. Now, look, see, we argue against growing people in test tubes, but had I grown in a test tube, I wouldn't have my past generation's fuck-ups to fuck me up to. Like, I just have my own fuck-ups to put on my own clean slate. Right. Well, and I think that's what we think a lot of times nowadays. That's the way we look at it. Like, when people come into the world, they're a clean slate, and none of their prior traumas, none of their prior things matter. Whatever their upbringing was doesn't matter. Like, when you're an adult, we're all at zero, and you're just supposed to move forward being good and doing the right yeah. things and making good decisions. And if you don't, you're morally bad. You need to be locked up. You need to be put in a cage. You need to be set fucking straight because your parents obviously didn't do it. So now, as an adult in society, we're going to do it for you. And really, we're coming into the world like a busted up ass hoopty. Right. That, you know, needs all kind of work. The fucking oil's leaking. The, the gas tank has sugar in it. What, like, shit just does not work at all. And then they're like, yeah, why aren't you going? Why don't you drive? What the fuck? And we're in a race with people that are in Mercedes that are brand new that got every opportunity and every... The 36 percenters. <laughs> right. The 36 percent that got everything. Those bastards. Those liars. You know, and, and they're you know, in a brand new Mercedes and we're supposed to race to the finish line. If this doesn't tell you the state of the world, I don't know what does. I truly don't believe them. I don't <laughs> the fucking believe that their family was that great. I'm like, it's impossible. I don't know any families like that. That's not real, but that's, and I'm not, okay, so let's take a rational look. Maybe it is real, but the fact that I don't believe it's real says something about everybody I know and, and the state of society. <laughs> Most of them are probably the 1% that we don't get to hang out with. <laughs> that might be it. <laughs> the overachieving 1%. Right. Even if their parents can't be there to provide the support, somebody's hired to. Yeah. So as a result of a lot of this science, as a result of these studies and all this different things, what they're figuring out is there are things we can do about it. The words that they use to describe treatment for some of this are trauma-informed care and resilience-based practices. Basically, we teach people, for one, to identify like, yeah, your trauma is real. Like, that shit's not normal, and you shouldn't just accept it as normal. And almost like you say, like, well, everybody goes through this. Well, no, everybody doesn't. It's right. This shit is not the way you were supposed to be brought up. It's not healthy. And that's okay. We start there. And then what can we do to give you some tools to give you some skills to kind of be able to deal with life better. Obviously, we're still going to have this compulsive comfort-seeking behavior because it's hardwired into us, but there are some healthier things that we can do that make our comfort-seeking not so damaging to ourselves or everyone else around us. Yeah, this is exactly what I was trained to do in my internship and what I'll be doing in a few months. You know, people come in, normalize, validate, and then assist them with some kind of new outlook and new skills and tools to be able to use kind of like what we 
doing recovery to some extent, right? We get, we talk about our recovery toolbox. Like this is like a life toolbox. Like what kind of things can we do now that we accept that you don't have to feel stupid for the way you feel about your life because there's some real <laughs> shit there. Right? Doesn't That's, make you weak. Right. <laughs> This is valid stuff that you went through. It's not fake. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that there's there's a lot of people that feel that way, and you don't have to feel weird about feeling that way. Now, what can we do to help you with some of that? Because now that you know it's a problem, we need to start putting into place some new behaviors and looking at your strengths, right? Like, what kind of strengths do you have? Well, let's build from there and, and build some more strengths and give you some new skills and ways to look at things and ways to interact with the world and ways to cope with stuff that's comforting that will get you better outcomes and help you feel better. Yeah, and when I started looking into what they describe as some of these trauma-informed care type things, it's really, I hate to say it this way, but it's almost like basic fucking human respect and dignity Mm. is what it boils down to. And it's sad that we have to look at that as like we need to teach people these skills as an approach to life. I wish people would do these things all the time. You know, it, it should be a way that we live, not a, a, a something that we aspire to be. It's incredible how many people that I saw while I was, you know, doing that, that just come across, and, and I don't know their whole life story, but they come across as if nobody has ever paid attention to them for a fucking hour before. And it's <laughs> right. like, Jesus Christ, like, that's sad. Yeah. Wow. Think about that concept, right? So it's so refreshing. That's why so many people find it refreshing just to walk into therapy. They're like, fuck, you You listen? You remember next week at my next appointment what I said this week? That's, that's amazing. It's fucking <laughs> right. And it blows their minds because they've never had that experience. And the problem is when we go through these ACEs, we get stuck into like an attachment style and, and a way that we think is normal, which is what we've talked about here. We say, oh, yeah, everybody grows up in fucked up households. It's normal. And so that's what we seek out subconsciously in our life. So we've set ourselves up in relationship after relationship that play out the exact same way and make us feel the exact same. Or we become the perpetrator and make other people feel that way. But either way, we've still never had these healthy relationships because we don't even know what they look like. And when they come along, we say, ah, that person's boring, unattractive. There's nothing interesting. There's no spark. Right. And so we've just perpetuated this our whole life. Uh, and it's not our fault. I mean, it's just what we've done. And so, yeah, we walk into a therapy room. And we're like, holy fuck, somebody cares. Yeah. So a couple of the things that they talk about, like say to me, these seem like basic things. But what we want to develop or the goal to try to develop in people, I guess, because usually by the time they find treatment or start looking for treatment, they're adults and the trauma has already been suffered. Right. Obviously, the earlier we can get involved, the better which is to me why we should start this shit in school age, high school, even younger, middle school. Pre-K. But some of it's pretty basic stuff, teaching people to be able to ask for help, teaching them it's okay to ask for help, helping them build trusting relationships. Maybe you can't trust your parents, but as you mentioned earlier, you might have a mentor at school or coach or someone in the neighborhood, maybe a neighborhood parent you know, as someone that's there to support you and help you looking for those kind of people in your life, forming positive attitudes, getting people out of self-hate, fucking off of social media, especially kids, (laughs) the devastation of that weirdness. Like we looked at this ACEs test as something that's going on in our household, but how much of what's going on in our immediate environment that's not our household? I spent almost as much time at school as I did at home. 
So how much of that also gets lumped into this ACEs, right? Yeah, and I think that's some of the current, more current studies that are mm. going on are some of those types of things. And I would say I personally think some of the social media stuff should start factoring in there. Like what is the influence of the internet and social media on kids nowadays and the trauma of like online bullying or that stuff? I mean, that's got to be pretty traumatic for kids. I mean, Christ, it's traumatic for me. I've decided that I don't get on Facebook anymore because it was fucking yeah. traumatic. It was, you know, my anxiety was up. I was fucking angry, hating people. <laughs> One of the last things they talk about is listening and talking about feelings, That, like how important that is that I start to recognize some of that about myself. Hey, you're getting on fucking Facebook and spending hours of time arguing with people and, and trying to be right. And when you leave those situations, most of the time I didn't feel better even when I felt like I was right and won the fucking argument. I still felt gross. And right. Like, and so learning like, hey, I don't have to continue that behavior. My feelings are telling me that this isn't a good thing for me to do. Maybe I just need to get away from it. Yeah. I mean, I. so I do we have listeners that aren't really exposed to the therapy world? I, I don't know. I don't know if people who aren't in tune with therapeutic ideas and concepts would enjoy listening to us. Maybe I have no idea. Right. But I'm just thinking for me, none of this aces the test itself, right? None of those responses that I had to those answers were mind blowing. Like I've explored most of this through some therapy at some point in time or another, I guess for somebody who's never been to therapy, that aces test could be a revelation of like, Oh, that that's not normal. That doesn't go on in every household. What do you mean? Right? Like that could really open their eyes to see that there's something big going on here. And, and so I guess in those instances, this test becomes helpful to open people's eyes and bring awareness to maybe you want to treat some of these things. Even if you're not an addict, maybe you just have areas you struggle in in your life, or maybe you just want more life satisfaction. Like that's a great goal. Maybe you could do something about it. And then I think for me, Ultimately, my goal looking at this now as a parent is like, let me read through this list again and see how many of these are present in my household now, right? Let me see what I'm providing and the environment I have and honestly assess if there's something I can do better to give my children a more protective layer against this kind of stuff. Right. And as you described, so that was my experience when I first read it and took it. I was like, wow, this is fucking mind blowing information. Like, I've been to therapy a few times. Most of the times when I was younger, I wasn't trying to go. I was right. either court-ordered or made to go, so I wasn't 100% honest about things. Or, you know, at 17 or 18, what the fuck do you know? I mean, I know you think you know a lot about life, but I didn't it know all. a whole lot. Right. And so I just read this maybe two years ago, a year and a half, two years ago. And when I read through that and, and looked at, like, wow, that's pretty fucking amazing you know that right. that this information like this is kind of the why behind what's wrong with me you know why i do some of the things that i do because it's baffling to me you hmm. know i remember as a kid my family would ask me like why do you do the things that you do i'm like i don't fucking know it, right. that's just what i want to do yeah. you know i don't know why i like getting high and risking my life every day it just seems fun i've been asking myself why all <laughs> right. morning like, I right as soon as you figure it out let me know right <laughs> so the last thing i did want to say was 
I think when I look through those things, when you look at asking for help, building trusting relationships, forming positive attitudes, listening to feelings, like that's what 12-step fellowships do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like it does all of those things are, are cornerstones to recovery in a 12-step fellowship. Right. You know, you're going and sitting in a group of people talking about your feelings, listening to other people's feelings. You're getting a sponsor, which is someone you're supposed to be able to trust in. You're admitting that you need help by showing up there and asking for help. Like all those things are sort of cornerstones to our process of recovery. And I think that's why it works. But I think it's also important for the flip side of that is we can take some of those really key elements of 12-step fellowships and try to find new or inventive ways to use them for people that have some aversion to 12-step meetings or have some aversion to NA or AA. Yeah, and there's only four of them. That sounds less daunting than 12. Well, there's definitely more. I just picked out the ones that seem to be like the the easiest and most in common with 12-step fellowship well let's just lie to people and tell them there's only four and then <laughs> yeah, after they work those four, four things no and well now we'll get on a little bit of a tangent i won't go too long but the guy that actually does those studies on how to overcome some of these things is very clear on sometimes even if you do all of these things it doesn't matter people are still messed up mm. the trauma is still there and they just don't overcome it like the the correlation between doing these things and getting better isn't as direct as the relationship between the trauma and the risky adverse behaviors that come with trauma right i think we should invent our own recovery program like yeah. right now and it'll be a four-step program and after they finish the first four steps we'll be like all right that's great now here's Here's the four steps you got to do in your life now. And it'll, it'll just be five through eight. <laughs> and then they finish that and be like, all right, now you just need these four parts of your life. And it'll be nine through 12. <laughs> right. Just be like, just four. Just only four, not 12. And then we can sell it for yeah. easy installments of 1995. <laughs> I, I mean, and then every time you finish something, you just have four things you got to focus on in your life. That's it. Right. Only four at a time. Sounds yeah. reasonable. It's not so overwhelming. Right. People can do four. Yeah. And then as soon as you finish those four, you just hit four different ones. Uh, Twelve sounds like a lot. It is. It takes forever. <laughs> well. And then you can be in like, and you're not, you finished already. You did four. You're like, oh yeah, you did great, man. That was phase one. Now phase two. <laughs> right. And then you, by then you're like, well, fuck, I'm in phase two. I can't quit now. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, if you're uh, interested at all in ACEs, like say the easiest place to go is aces2high.com. Check out all the information on there. Scientists got to get rid of these fucking acronyms, dude. <laughs> ACEs too high. It's, it's like too legit to quit. That'll yeah. be the next one. Yeah. You could go there and find some information. They they want to be catchy. Yeah. My wife was telling me that I guess all these state organizations now are coming up with podcasts about all this information, uh, but they make it like boring and stupid and nobody wants to hear it because it's a fucking done by the state. Right. <laughs> so I told her we were going to try to do it a little different. Maybe ours would be a little more interesting. The state one definitely doesn't have foul language. Yeah. That's why we say <laughs> fuck the state. State's great, but so, fuck the state. Yeah. So if you stuck with us this long, thank you for listening. Please rate review give us positive feedback on whatever your current listening platform um it helps us to be found more easily in searches and things and helps promote the podcast uh we appreciate you as our listeners and look forward to hearing from you soon yeah and do it do the aces test and tell us what you come up with reach out to us on any of the social media platforms email all that great stuff find us on facebook twitter reddit youtube wherever oh you can watch us on youtube all that great stuff (laughs) 
especially if you're in the 36% of you know yes. the zero people. We'd yes. really like to hear from you. I want to hear all about your lying ass. <laughs> all right. Have a great week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with people you think might benefit from the conversation. Look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to join the conversation also and share your ideas with us. We'd love to hear it.